Hello, I'm Amy Smith, and I work at the UN Library and Archives Geneva and on our podcast, The Next Page, which is designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. In this episode, I talk with Professor Eleanor O'Malley about her position as Chair of the United Nations Studies in Peace and Justice at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and about her research. Professor O'Malley brings new light to shine on invisible histories and offers different perspectives to the construction of internationalism. Let's listen. Professor O'Malley, welcome to the next page. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You know, you may be new to the next page, but I understand that you're no stranger to the library. Yeah, I had the pleasure of uh, of being at the library for my research for my first book, which was on the UN in the Congo in the 60s. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, I had a fantastic experience uh, researching and working with your librarians and just... Um, really having a, a wonderful time in your amazing facility and also discovering so many uh, UN files and documents that I was um, using for my research. So it was a very fruitful time. Thank you. We love, we love having researchers here with us. Um, and so you are a, histi- a historian and uh, an expert in international relations. So tell us a bit more about yourself and, and what led you into this field. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, so, yeah, I'm a historian. I, I did my PhD in Florence at the European University. Um, and after that, I became an assistant professor of history at Leiden. Um, and so what I'm interested in primarily is the history of the United Nations and something I've always been fascinated by. Um, and to a large extent, what I, I found um, kind of strange when I set out to do my PhD, which was, as I mentioned, about the Congo crisis in the 60s, was that we don't have a lot of um, big histories of the UN. It's rather it, this institution arises when people look at various themes or crises or um, geopolitical issues. But we don't really have many histories of the UN itself in the kind of standard historiography. Um, And so in recent years, we've had um, a real um, surge of scholarship in this area, Um, also in international institutions in general. I mean, if we think about Susan Pedersen's book on the League of Nations and then Mark Mazower and Paul Kennedy, who wrote their um, books about the United Nations, then there's more and more interest. And so um, I think I really became part of that emerging scholarship um, when I was doing my PhD um, and then really decided to take the question forward and um you know, being at Leiden University, it was a great opportunity to to do that because, of course, uh, Leiden uh, is also based in The Hague, which is a UN city, the city of peace and justice. So um, for me, I was very fortunate to be able to acquire a special professorship in UN studies and peace and justice a couple of years ago, which was um, created in the city of The Hague at Leiden University. Um, and so that's been a wonderful opportunity to think more broadly about the UN and its history and its past, the present and future, and to try to generate um, a wider network of, of interdisciplinary scholarship around this issue. This is really interesting. So, so I understood that this special appointment to, to the chair, and the chair is positioned between the Institute of Security and Global Affairs at Leiden's University Faculty of Governance and Global Affairs and the Faculty of Governance, Law and Safety at the Hague University. So it really is in between the two. Um, but I was interested also to read that a long-term aim of the chair is to change perceptions about the UN and to make the work of the UN more visible and relevant to the general public. 
with. Um, what do you find are some of the challenges with that? Yeah, so when I um, acquired the chair and then we were thinking about the research agenda, um, we wanted to open up um, questions that were interesting for scholarship, of course, for historians and international relations scholars, but also for the general public, because a lot of the the kind of um, emphasis of setting up a special chair was also to think about how to translate academic knowledge into something a bit more um, interesting and tangible, you know, for the general audience. Um, and also because it was going to be the UN's 75th anniversary, which of course was last October in 2020. Um, and so we were thinking about that from the beginning. So we decided to um, to try to think about the way people perceive the UN um, and what are the common kind of conceptions and perhaps misconceptions about the UN and what it does uh, and how could we change those so two um, kind of things that we focused on you know as a way it's kind of a thematic um, connection to try to connect the different research uh, projects under the chair was to um, introduce people to this idea that the UN is more than the Security Council, which I think if, if you are familiar with the UN, of course you know this, but if you uh, look at any common media, uh, newspapers or TV or Twitter, then it's always the, the great powers relationship and the Security Council that gets the focus. But we wanted to highlight what the UN does really, really well in terms of economic and social development. Um, and so we started to talk about how to shift the perception from just one organ of the UN to a more um, holistic overview of what the UN does. Uh, and then the pandemic kind of gave us a boost with that because certainly the World Health Organization was in the news every day um, and there was a lot more interest and a lot more attention towards um, the UN's work in, in international health and in, in, of course, then economic and social development. So that was one of the big um, things that we wanted to, to tackle. Um, I suppose the second issue that really confronted us was how do we get young people interested in uh, in this question? Because, of course, um, you know, we're working with university students all the time, but we also wanted to think about reaching constituencies of people who we did not normally get the chance to talk to or who perhaps, um, you know, wouldn't really um, have learned so much about the UN in school or would not confront the UN on a daily basis. Um, and so we set up uh, a, um, a classroom, um, a school program working with teenagers in The Hague uh, where they come to the university once a week and they try they they get introduced to the UN and we we do lots of um yeah, games and activities with them to um ask them what they think of the UN and what does the UN mean for their future um and this is really important and it actually connects quite well to the work that the UN does itself on um the youth and the 2030 agenda um and so what i found was really fascinating about working with uh, younger younger students like that is that actually in many cases some of them had come um, as refugees or asylum seekers through the UN system. Um, some of them have come from UN refugee camps and then had found um, asylum in the Netherlands. And so they had very different impressions of what the UN is and they saw it as in many cases directly relevant and responsible to their uh, personal security. Um, and then others, second generation um 
uh, immigrants, perhaps they had different impressions that their the UN had helped their parents, but it was so present for them in their own family lives in The Hague right now. Um, and so working together with them has been really informative for me in what they think about what the UN is and this voice of the youth that we talk about capturing all the time. But actually, I, I, what I found is that it's right there. We just have to listen to them. Yes, but it's often quite absent. Um, I wanted to, of course, mention your TED Talk because you've um, led a TED Talk. Uh, I think it was called Blue Hel- From Blue Helmets to Blue Skies, and we'll be putting that in the resource link. But this links up with your work on uh, changing perceptions about the UN and getting information out to public. Um, but I-, I wondered also um, how you find it as a-, as a historian, combining this sort of role of advocacy almost for for the UN with the work the critical work of a of a historian um how do you find this goes together yeah it's it's a, that's a really good question um so for me it's quite a natural relationship so i, I think that I find sometimes a lot of the debates about charter review or the reform of the UN, it's a little bit hollow, given that, uh, in my view, we we lack a full history of the UN's um, evolution and our histories tend to be rather one-sided. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute when I mention my my current research. Um, So I I think that in order to have really well-informed policy discussions about the UN or in fact, um, to to enter into these dialogues about the future of the organisation, we really have to have a clear understanding of its past and how the UN has changed over time. It hasn't just been the same organisation that we've had since 1945, which is one of the the, um, the lines that that so often is is told about the UN. Well, it's, it's frozen since 1945. No, it hasn't. Actually, it's quite a different organisation and it's quite dynamic. Um, and so, I think it's very important to actually infuse that public discussion with that critical history. Um, and I would say that um, I I do like to um, kind of work on this idea of changing public perception. And I would say that I suppose you could call me an advocate for the UN, but it's certainly not only one-sided, right? I mean, I think if we're really going to address these fundamental problems with the UN, then we have to be quite frank about the things that it, it hasn't performed well with. Um, but we also have to change the conversation about the UN. And that's really what I want to do is to get away from this tired narrative of success or failure and rather look at um, the dynamism, but also the paralysis of the organization over time. Oh, interesting. So I, I think that's a, a perfect introduction now into moving on a bit about to, uh, to talk about your book that you co-edited with Simon Jackson, who's the director of the Centre for Modern and Contemporary History at the University of Birmingham, and it's called The Institution of International Order. We have it in the library. And you delve in this book into um, recovering a fuller picture of the history of internationalism. Um, but first of all, perhaps you could briefly define what you mean by internationalism, and particularly you bring in the word internationalisms. And, and so what do you mean about that? Yeah, um, so when we were, uh, we had a very exciting conference um, in, in the European University in Florence in 2013, that's where this um, volume arose, um, and I say it was exciting because we brought together um, a lot of younger um, early career researchers who were working on the League of Nations and the UN, but also on with historians who perhaps didn't traditionally talk about international institutions. And so we started to think about um, internationalism 
um, and this connection to you know, liberal internationalism that's so often presumed to be one and the same. And what we found um, in thinking about internationalism is that it's not just the conduct or the interests of states. It's not just um, um, a nation state um, mode of conduct, but rather that what emerged within that bracket was the whole formation of international society. So the evolution of norms, um, the development of institutions and practices, um, the the kind of behaviour of states, uh, the management of interests, the role of non-state actors, the role of um, NGOs. Um, and so we started to see uh, rather a kind of a patchwork of um, really um, kind of quite different, but also um, uh, inherently connected um, actors and institutions um, emerging, as we talked about the League and the UN. And these were not just in Geneva or in New York, but actually in very um, kind of distant places that we hadn't really considered as um, wellsprings of internationalism. But actually what we found in a lot of the papers and then subsequently in the volume that, you know, from uh, Portugal to Brazil um, to the Middle East uh, to Africa, we found um, internationalisms emerging. And what did we mean by this um, idea? Well, I think what we're trying to get at is that there's a plurality of the ways in which um, international conduct evolves. And, you know, some actors approach it in different ways and they obviously have different interests and different norms. Um, and that it's not just a simple game of rule following, that all actors follow international rules in the same way. Um, and what has been most kind of fascinating for us in, in that volume was looking at the ways in which these actors on a local level or on a national level, sought to reinterpret rules and principles of international order and the international system to their specific context. And what we saw then was coming back from these um, different regional spaces was different types of internationalism. And so we talked about internationalisms as a way to capture that. Yeah, uh, it sounds like quite a it was quite an exciting conference and and, and you, you throw out I loved it that you throw out a challenge to IR scholars uh, in the book to provide a more I think you say granulized historicizing of how institutions work and how they affect change in broader cultures of the international and I really did find that the book is a, a exploration of the League of Nations and the Uni United Nations as dynamic forces. And you've mentioned this word mm -hmm. dynamic a few times already. Um, but could you say a bit more about these dynamic forces and, 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 and how it's not just um, internationalism, just as you say, a product of what the UN did in New York or in Geneva, but how also uh, the League of Nations and the UN affected change? Yeah, so what we wanted to do with the volume as well was to trace the connections and the differences between the League and the UN. So we wanted to bring together the two institutions, not comparatively side by side, but rather think about them as um, spaces and vehicles through which internationalism and internationalisms changed across the 20th century. Um, and so in that way, see them as uh 
coming together rather than than always being separate um, separated quite deliberately um and we, we see that in the historiography quite a lot there's this assumed break between you know the league being such a a tragic failure and then the UN coming in on the moment of the winning of the Second World War and then the rise of liberal internationalism and so on and so forth. And we really wanted to problematize that because that's very much a kind of a linear narrative of development of the international order. Um, and so we started to think about them as reflexive spaces um, and spaces in which um, different actors came at different moments with their various interests and and, um, and their various um, aims. But we also started to think about the League and the UN as having force fields uh, of their own. So one of the, the ways to think about this is, you know, what happens to an idea when it comes into an international system um, and you know, why do some ideas become legitimized and others rather delegitimized? The same goes for the actors and issues that are part of that system. Um, and we start to think about how the normative environment was shifted, not necessarily just by the, the great powers and their politics, but by also other forces. Um, and so that dynamism we rooted in um, the organizations and in the platforms they provided and in the spaces. Um, but, uh, you know, I was always kind of thinking as well, um, along with Simon, and we, we, we really worked around this question quite a lot when we, especially write our introduction, how to understand what the League and the UN are historically and what they what they do to ideas. So what happens to actors and ideas inside the system? And so we naturally turn towards international relations scholarship for thinking about the theory of institutions and we looked at the work of of course um Amory Slaughter and um, you know uh, also Martha Finnamore, Catherine Sickink, and their famous article about norms and institutions. Um, and then a little bit further, you know, to to others um, who were a lot more critical of institutions. Um, and so we we really looked at these theories as a way to try to understand the historical process of what was going on at the League and the UN. Um, and of course, we're not theorists and um, we don't wish to produce a new theory of international organisations. So what we called for in the volume was just a greater, closer relationship between um, those two uh, disciplines, in particular, the kind of historicizing, if you like, of a lot of the the our um, scholarship a little bit further. And you bring out all of this in in sort of three sections. Uh, uh, one is you've spoken about the the how norms were produced, and but also about how expertise has developed, and also. Uh, how there was a, um, a global reordering of empire, and I think you're probably referring to decolonization and the move, uh, and the move to a world composed of nation states. With that, um, but would you like to share with us some of the wonderful examples of the different forces at play within some of these sections? Yeah, I mean, I should get more specific now because I've been talking in the abstract for quite a few minutes. Um, so we, as I said, brought together a lot of different scholars um, who worked on very different regions. And that's the, that's the real advantage of doing an edited volume, um, which is that you get to engage with um, experts from regional spaces that would be very difficult to put together in a book by even by two people. Um, so one of the, the really interesting um 
chapter is to give an example is from Jose Antonio Sanchez Roman, um, and he talks about the, the you know what happens to economic sovereignty and the norms of economic sovereignty, um, and this is actually long before the emergence of the Economic Commission for Latin America uh, and the Caribbean, which is at the the UN, um, and he really shows that in in the 1920s um, that you know. League of Nations meetings in Geneva and Brussels and, and Barcelona, there's new connections made by talking about trade and shipping and international taxation, which really forms the basics um, and the kind of um, fundamental uh, motivation, of course, as well, for that crusade for economic sovereignty, which is so often connected to the 1960s and 1970s at the UN. So um, this was just kind of one example of how um, the league really kind of lays the foundations for a lot of later developments in a normative and an ideational sense, um, but then really kind of tangible influence um, and uh, tangible connections between business lobbies um, from Latin America and across Europe really also advances this. So thinking about the, the global reordering uh, of nation states and uh, the transition to a world of nation states. Uh, one other chapter that's worth highlighting is that from Miguel Bandera Geronimo and Jose Pedro Montiero. And they're really looking at the impact of the League and the UN on the Portuguese Empire. Uh, and that's such an interesting question because you know, the, the common perception is that because the Portuguese Empire survived for so long that obviously the UN and the League had no influence in uh, in kind of foreclosing that empire or, or encouraging uh, a quick end. But actually what they show is that um, by focusing on labour regimes uh, and the role of the International Labour Organization as well, they show that uh, there is really a politics that plays out between uh, the League and the UN on what happens inside the Portuguese Empire. Um, and they use different case studies to show that the ways in which um, the League and the UN engage with the Portuguese Empire and the role of uh, publicity and NGOs really forces Portugal to um, rethink and internally scrutinize the policies on forced labor. Um, and that's an incredibly uh, you know, new and um, incredibly important perspective, which really shows that the influence as well of these organizations is very subtle sometimes, but very, very effective. Um, so I think it tells us a lot about um, the way that international institutions and the politics of those spaces can deeply impact how um, nation states evolve and how, of course, the Imperial Project was folded up. Fascinating. Yes. It sounds like there's been a lot of uncovering, recovering of, of, of history, of stories. And your current work is on... Uh, invisible histories. It sounds absolutely intriguing. Uh, what histories are you researching? Uh, why are they hidden? What's the importance of bringing these back to the light? So as we were doing this volume um, and uh, we were kind of thinking more broadly about the role of these institutions in 20th century history, um, it became very clear that uh, we really lack a lot of perspectives of those institutions that are non-Western. So this is kind of what I mentioned a little bit earlier on, is that our histories of the UN and the League uh, as well tend to be from a Western perspective, really focused on Western motivations and Western actors and based in Western archives. Um, but actually, uh, for me, then I was thinking a bit more about the history of the UN and how can this be the case if 
since 1960, two-thirds of the UN's members are from the global south. So um, this really got me into the question of, you know, why don't we have more non-Western histories of the UN or of issues at the UN um, and of the really big questions of the time, which were, of course, around decolonization and economic sovereignty and human rights. So my new project, um, which is uh, entitled Challenging the Liberal World Order, um, the invisible history of the UN and the Global South, is trying to get at that problem and looking at, um, firstly, what is the, the, the role of Global South actors over time at the UN in particular, and how has that history been uh, rendered invisible by the historiography um, and, in certain cases, by the institution itself? And so the project tries to understand the relationship between the Global South and the UN, um, and the UN really at moments facilitating the agency of Global South actors, but also um, at other times inhibiting it. Um, and the consequences for um, uh, the, the order between Global South actors, but also the international order uh, more generally. Um, so... That word then invisible doesn't mean that those histories aren't there. It simply means that there's been a process of invisibilization that has taken place. Um, and I'm really interested in um, unraveling the contributions, the myriad contributions of global South actors by tracing their agency uh, at the UN over time. And the, the, the project really kind of is focused on how those actors then use that agency to challenge the liberal world order and to change it from within rather than just to be the recipient of that order, which is another um, kind of perspective that we have um, really uh, developed over time. Yeah, and of course um, the Global South has <coughs> been you know, such a factor in the evolution of the, of the international systems in the UN. Um, and uh, do you th feel that this, uh, this sort of covering of history, hiding of, of, of this is also part of the reason why the Global South is still invisible today, despite the changes brought about by decolonization? Yeah, I think so. I think that we, we still, um, in, in thinking about the UN, even in a current sense, uh, we still tend to anticipate in many cases that the Global South is the recipient of UN policies or the recipient of UN aid. Um, but actor, you know, actually, um, what, what I've seen just in, in starting the project um, already for, for a year is that the Global South are, they're more active at the UN than Western countries. And it's actually Western countries that try to inhibit um, and to, to prevent change um, because the UN system is set up in 45 to serve their interests. So they don't really want it to change over time. But in fact, there's enormously fascinating um, examples of Global South agency, but also uh, collaboration. So actors, even who are yet, not yet um, state actors, are collaborating in transnational networks, um, anti-imperial and anti-colonial networks, to um, remake this global order that is so uh, inexorable um, and is so um, really it's not liberal at all for them it's not liberating um, and so there's a great project of resistance um, and of solidarity but also of concrete um, order building that's going on by the global south at this time and I think that if we had a fuller grasp of that dynamic history it tells us a lot about the UN of course but it also tells us a lot about the historic role of global South actors and the ways in which their agency has been um, 
both both thwarted but also facilitated and that's important in order to think about their role uh, now in shaping the UN and, and shaping the global system. Exactly and we're back to these dynamic forces at play. So final thoughts from you, Um, um, going back to the book on the institution of international order, uh, order, I noticed that the the Associate Professor of History at the University of Albany, State University at New York, Ryan Irwin, suggests that your book answers the riddle, how did we get here? Um, But we'd like to ask, where are we going? And do you think that internationalism has a future? What's your hope around this? Um, so I actually think that, uh, you know, the, the current moment of the pandemic highlights the importance of internationalism because anybody who had doubts about the efficacy and the importance of global governance until uh, this year, I think uh, it's very hard to, to argue now that we don't need global governance and we don't need the UN because the challenge that we're facing is inherently global it's not just international it's global because it's we're all kind of inherently connected to each other and how we manage the pandemic um so i actually uh, would feel quite positive about the opportunities that this might create this crisis might lead to a, an opening of opportunities to really um re-engage with the un um and i also think that you know as long as we have these very important conversations as scholars but also um individuals about the role of the UN uh, over time but also um, currently then it keeps the institution alive in our public consciousness and in our um, repertoires Um, and I think can be done with that so uh, you know there's still a real problem with the way that people perceive the organization and that the organization kind of um, in some ways portrays itself uh, and I think that we need a, a closer engagement with the UN's uh, successes and failures, even after this moment of crisis, to really think about its uh, its future possibilities. And to me, that lies very much in producing a more full, more accurate and frankly, more interesting history of the UN over time. Well, this conversation has certainly been very interesting. So thank you very much, Professor Eleanor O'Malley. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.